Portions of this podcast may not be suitable for children. It's real-life stories and sometimes PG-13. There are no crown wearers in heaven who are not cross-bearers here below. Charles Spurgeon. You're listening to the Think Twice TV podcast. Hear true life stories, catch good vibes, and be inspired by engaging messages. On this show, we'll think twice about life, faith, and just what could be possible when the two are united. Broadcasting from the beautiful Great Lakes state of pure Michigan, here's your host, Dan Henderson. Hello, thank you for listening. Today's show is entitled The H Word Part 2, and we'll focus on the topic of heaven. If you missed part one, we talked about the other H word and the biblical meaning of hell. There was an old rock song by Led Zeppelin called Stairway to Heaven. Now that was a little bit before my time, but it's pretty much a rock legend. One line in the song says, and she's buying a stairway to heaven. Although it's just a song, it conveys a common misconception about getting to heaven. You've got to buy it, earn it, or claw and climb your way there. But I'm convinced that all the really big life questions can be answered by Jesus. He had a lot to say about heaven. Take John 10.9, Jesus drops a bombshell and says, I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. He leaves no room for confusion with John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's pretty clear he's saying it's a one-way road to heaven. More on this later when we share the four points to understanding heaven. Now let's get right into our first story from Captain Dale Black. He wrote a really cool book called Flight to Heaven. He nearly died in a horrible plane crash and he shares his experiences of the afterlife and how he was changed forever. For more on Captain Black or his book, go to daleblack.org or check the show notes for links. I never thought that I would die. I never actually thought about being injured. I thought, tomorrow, we are going to be the headlines of the newspaper. I was convinced at age 14 that I wanted to become a commercial airline pilot. I don't know, there was something about power and control and adventure, travel. And once I took my first flight as a pilot, I, I was hooked. When I looked down and saw the world from the air, I had this feeling of freedom. And I thought, gosh, I can take this airplane someday and fly anywhere I want to go. I felt like I belonged in the air. This is where I'm going to spend my entire vocational life. And I did. As a flight instructor, airline pilot instructor, standards captain, aviation safety counselor, FAA designated examiner in jet aircraft. I would give check rides and airline transport pilot certificate exams. I just enjoyed it. I just loved it. At age 19, got a volunteer part-time job as a co-pilot and was able to fly with this guy named Chuck. 
It was uh, July 18th, 1969. I got on the freeway and drove to the Hollywood Burbank Airport. It was a perfectly clear morning. I got to the Piper Navajo, a twin-engine, 10-seat aircraft, and was looking forward to just another typical, beautiful day of flying. Chuck and Gene, the relative of the chief pilot, got to the airplane, and Chuck said, okay, Dale, now Gene is going to be flying left seat today. That's the first time that had happened. And then I would be riding in the right seat as co-pilot. We did another engine run up. There was nothing wrong with the airplane. We started up, started taxiing out. Chuck noticed that there was uh, something not exactly right. Chuck tapped me on the shoulder, I shall never forget it. And he motioned for me to uh, uh, change positions with him. So I got out of the co-pilot seat, he got in, I strapped myself down into the temporary third seat. Gene in the left seat is flying, but Chuck in the right seat is in control. We were then cleared for takeoff, everything's normal, the airplane begins to bounce, that's normal, and we actually rotate and lift off the ground and start to climb. We were about 100 feet above the runway, and yet we weren't climbing. So the, the nose of the aircraft is pitched up, but we're not going up. And the engines are straining at full power. And then for some strange reason, I began to hear this unfamiliar uh, whine of the engines that they were out of sync. Well, with that huge, uh, loud sound of the engines being in disharmony, now my worst fears uh, became realized when Chuck, the guy in command in the right seat, points with his left hand and said, let's land in that clear area over there. The thought came to my mind that we were going to crash. Then I noticed, and I shall never forget this either, Chuck reached up and grabbed the flight controls and he squeezed them with both hands, moved them all the way left, pulled them all the way against his chest all in one motion in about a half of a second of time. We clipped the tops of some tall trees. It turned the airplane to the left and then forced our direction to slam into this very solid uh, concrete and tile is called the Portal of the Folded Wings. It's ironically erected in memory of deceased pilots. It's seven stories tall, and we impacted it five feet from the top. The official impact speed was recorded by the NTSB at 135 miles per hour. It was considered non-survivable. The airplane just broke into literally a couple thousand pieces, and then three pilots fell to 70 feet to the ground. And the next thing that happened is I'm looking down at the three bodies and I'm wondering why I'm here, why I'm seeing this. And I'm looking down at this airplane crash and not knowing that I was in an airplane crash. I'm looking down at three bodies and I look at the first person who's dead I look at the second person, it's Chuck, but I don't recognize that it's Chuck. I, I look at the third person and it's me, and I do recognize, oh my gosh, that's me. I didn't feel worried, I didn't feel panicky, I didn't feel any pain, of course, uh, but I felt very alive and very alert. 
and for a while confused. Why is that my body and why am I up here? Why am I seeing that? I thought, gosh, I had died so young. I follow my body to the hospital. I'm above my body in the emergency room. I start moving out of the hospital past Burbank. It didn't take long and I start realizing I'm being accompanied by two angelic beings behind me. There was a light that was far ahead. Now this light was so bright that it would be brighter than the sun. The source of it is God. It's coming from God and everybody knows it. I knew that I was in eternity. There's no sickness in heaven. There's no death in heaven. There's only light and life and love. And uh, talk about heaven. Just get me talking about the love of heaven. <laughs> and see, I believe that God created men and women in his own image, that we are a spirit, we have a soul, we live in a body and we were created to want to love and be loved. But I believe that if we were really honest with ourselves, that we would find that we were also created to give love as well as to receive it. And the interesting thing is, is as you give anything, whatever you give, you get right back. <laughs> it's just a, the, one of the principles of God. If you give something, you get that something back. I knew that I belonged. And then all of a sudden, I was brought back to life. There I am, my back is broken in multiple places. There was debris that had been pulled out of my body. I was a disaster. <laughs> you know, I have a, a scientific mind. I'm trained as an engineer. My background uh, with my parents and grandparents, we all had a logical background, so things had to be quantified and, and uh, they had to be solid and, and provable. Uh, and none of this is that way, yet uh, my whole life is different. My whole life has been changed because of this experience. I recognize that life is really short and it's unpredictable. The most important thing that I've ever come to determine is where will we go when we die? And Jesus said, if you believe in me, you shall have eternal life. Do your own due diligence. Get a good Bible and read everything that Jesus said. That's all. Just read what he said. And keep your mind very alert, but open your heart and then make your own decision it's it's your life it's your eternal life so do with it whatever you want to do but uh, don't just believe someone else because they said something don't believe some preacher because he's preached and certainly don't believe me but do believe what you read from the word of god You're listening to the Think Twice TV podcast. Come see us at thinktwicetv.com. Hi, brothers and sisters. I wanted to share my son, my oldest son, his near-death experience that he had when he was 10 years old. Now, since then, um, he actually had died when he was 13 years old. 
And I know I'm going to see him again in heaven. I wanted to tell you that before he actually died, he had a near-death experience in which he was 10 years old and he was dead for a total of 40 minutes. Not four minutes, but 40. What happened is he had a near-drowning experience. He was gone for 40 minutes, like I said before. When he, they brought him back to life, they said that he was going to be a vegetable because he went without oxygen for so long, for 40 minutes. And they said there was no way that he would be normal again. Um, of course, we all know that uh, God can do anything, right? Let's just say my son was not brain dead when they brought him back to life. He was on life support for five days, but he pulled through. His mind was perfectly fine. However, his lungs and his heart was not. So that's why he ended up dying three years later when he was 13. I am going to get into his near-death experience right now. I'm going to tell you what exactly he told me when he died and when he was brought back, what he told me on the details. This is what he said, okay? He said, Mom, he said, when I was down in the water, I seen this guy walking towards me he was wearing a white robe. He had long, brown, curly hair, and his eyes were kind of golden. And he had a slash of gold, like a belt, around his waist. And I said, who was he? And he says, I think he was Jesus. He said, it was the rock and roll dude. And I said, the rock and roll dude? <laughs> And he said, yeah, well, he kind of looked like a rock and roll dude because of the long hair. <laughs> and this is coming from a 10-year-old. So as you guys know, you know, uh, kids have an imagination and they sometimes don't know how to express everything they see. But he said, I think it was Jesus. And then at the end of the dream, he said, I know it was Jesus. But what happened is he said, right when he was down in the water, he seen him walking towards him, but then he also seen to the to the one side of him, he said there was a black hole that had opened up inside the water, and this ugly creature came out and was trying to grab him. And he said, Jesus said to him, he said, go ahead and kick him in the teeth. He said, go ahead, kick him in the teeth. And he said, so he kicked him in the teeth, and he said the creature went, made this noise and went back in his hole, and then the hole closed up. And then he said, Jesus said to him, I know your mother, and he said, I'm going to uh, take you to another place. And he said, grab my hand. And my son said he took his hand, and he said, next thing I knew, Mom, he says, I was flying in the air. He said, I was flying way up in the clouds. And he said, the clouds looked like little cotton balls. And he said, I was flying way up. And we kept on going way, way, way up past space and past everything. And 
he said, I could see the planets and that. And he said, he went far, far up. And he said, Jesus took him to this city. And I said, a city? I said, what kind of city was it? And he said, well, everything was kind of crystallized. Like everything looked kind of crystally and shiny. He said the streets were actually paved with gold and they were very shiny and sparkly. And he said there were many mansions there and they were all sparkly and they looked like big castles and just beautiful. And he said everything, all the colors were like more beautiful there than they are here on earth that there were a lot of babies there. And he said, Mom, I couldn't understand why there were so many babies in this place. He said they had these workers that would take care of these babies until someone in their family had come up there to, you know, take care of them. He said there were workers for everything up in heaven. And he said everybody was loving. He said it was like you were all one big happy family. And he said, Mom, I never felt so much love in a place in my whole entire life. He said, even though I loved you, I didn't want to come back. He said, I was so happy. I felt so much love. He said, I could fly. He said, if I had a thought in my mind, if I thought, well, I wonder if this is going to happen. He said, it was like it, the answer came to him automatically. He said... It's like when you go to heaven that your mind is transformed and you instantly have the mind of Jesus. You instantly have powers and you have abilities and things. He said, well, then I asked the rock and roll dude. He said, Jesus, but he said the rock and roll dude. He said, then I asked him, um, what's going to happen, you know, with my mom and my brother and everything. He said he was shown the future. He would die finally when his mission, his mission assignment on earth was done. And I never knew what that meant until the day he died. When he died at the age of 13, he had so many from his school come up, you know, uh, so many and so many were crying and they were like, your son was like the nicest kid we ever met. Your son was, was so wonderful. And they actually held a church service, you guys. And that night, they used my son's testimony about his life, about how he was as a person, because he was a really good kid, you guys. He was, he was awesome. But they used his testimony. And you know, that night, four, uh, 13, 14 kids went down to the altar and gave their life to Jesus Christ. So what I'm saying is my son, he completed his mission at his death because 14 kids were saved because of his testimony, because of his life and because of how he lived his life. He was a good kid and he gave his heart to Jesus when he was a little boy and he, he had such a good heart, you guys, and I can't wait to see him again in heaven. I wanted to share that when you die, you're going to go to heaven or hell. You have got to make a choice. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, ask him into your heart. Life, hope, and truth for Generation Now. This is Hashtag Gospel. Relevant, inspiring, and straight to the point. The gospel and what it means for us. 
In a game of poker, going all in is a big deal. You do it when you believe it's worth it, and you choose not to hold anything back. When you meet Jesus, you're confronted with the same kind of choice, to give him everything, to surrender every part of who you are, your finances, your desires, your relationships, everything. It isn't so much about giving things up. It's about acknowledging his wisdom and love for you and choosing to submit to what he'd have you do instead. The Bible paints this picture for us of being all in or not in at all. Those are the only options. And this is a choice you'll actively be making every day for the rest of your life. To let the gospel, which literally means good news, lead you into the abundant life that Christ offers. By daily living a life of repentance, submission, and dependence on Jesus, and sharing his love with others. This is Hashtag Gospel. View each message as an amazing animated video at hashtaggospel.com. That's H-A-S-H-T-A-G, gospel.com. Follow them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hashtag Gospel. It's time for a bottle of Bill's Wisdom, a short, single-serving message of wisdom from our friend, Pastor Bill Leach. I stand by the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It's the door through which men walk when they find God. There's no use my going way inside and staying there when so many are still outside and they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all that so many ever find is only a wall where a door ought to be. They creep along the walls like blind men with outstretched, groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet never finding it. So I stand by the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for men to find that door, the door to God. The most important thing any man can do is to take hold of one of those blind, groping hands and put it on the latch that only clicks and opens to that man's own touch. Men die outside the door as starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter. Die for what is, die for want of what is within their grasp. They live on the other side of it. Live because they have not found it. Nothing else matters compared to helping them find it and open it and walk in and find him. So I stand at the door. Go in, great saints. Go all the way in. Go way down into the cavernous cellars and way up into the spacious attics. It's a vast, roomy house, this house where God is. Go into the deepest of the hidden casements of withdrawal, of silence, of sainthood. Some must inhabit those inner rooms and know the depth and heights of God and call outside to the rest of us of how wonderful it is. Sometimes I take a deeper look in Sometimes venture in a little farther, but my place seems closer to the opening. So I stand by the door. There's another reason why I stand there. Some people get partway in and become afraid, lest God and the zeal of his house devour them. For God is so very great and asks all of us. And, and these people feel a cosmic claustrophobia and they want to get out. Let me out, they cry. And, 
And the people way inside only terrify them more. Somebody must be by the door to tell them they are, that they are spoiled for the old life. They have seen too much. Once taste God and nothing but God will do anymore. Somebody must be watching for the frightened who seek to sneak out just where they came in to tell them how much better it is inside. The people too far in don't see how near these are to leaving, preoccupied with the wonder of it all. Somebody must watch for those who have entered the door but would run away. So for them too I stand by the door. I admire the people who go way in, but I wish they would not forget how it was before they got in. Then they would be able to help the people who have not yet even found the door or the people who want to run away from God. You can go in too deeply and stay too long and forget the people outside the door. As for me, I shall take my old accustomed place, near enough to God to hear him and know he's there, but not so far from men as not to hear them and remember that they are there too. Where? Outside the door. Thousands of them. Millions of them. But more important for me, one of them, two of them, ten of them, whose hands I am intended to put on the latch so I stand by the door and wait for those who seek it. I had rather be a doorkeeper. So I stand by the door. When we believe in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we enter solidarity with Him and His righteousness becomes ours. We are spared. We are forgiven for His sake. Hallelujah. As we wrap up the show, it's important to filter supernatural stories through the Bible. This will keep us on track in avoiding strange or distracting ideals. This brings us to the four biblical keys to understanding heaven. One, heaven is a real place. Like Toledo or Tahiti, it's a real location. John 14, 2 and 3 says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. 2. Heaven is God's dwelling place. Matthew 10.32 Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. 3. Heaven is a paradise. Not just golden sunsets, but truly a perfect fulfillment. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the order of the old things have passed away. And 4. Everyone in heaven wants you to live there too. Luke 15, 7 says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Lastly, Jesus was crucified with two thieves. Luke 23 recounts one of the criminals that insulted Jesus, but the other rebuked him and said, We are getting what our deeds deserve. Then said, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Today you will be with me in paradise. With his last few minutes here in his earthly body, Jesus gives all of heaven to one unworthy sinner. Now, it's important not to miss this point too, that a lot of people think that Jesus will save everybody just because he's Jesus. But it takes our active participation. The forgiven thief did two things, confess his sins and believe in Jesus. Simple, right? Repent and believe. 
For more information about heaven, click the link in the show notes that says All About Heaven. Our next episode is entitled Mean Streets, Tales of Amazing Grace from the Inner City. Thank you for listening to the Think Twice TV podcast. Come see us at thinktwicetv.com. Find original videos, true life stories, and content to help you grow your faith at thinktwicetv.com. This project is sponsored by Media Messengers Evangelistic Association, revealing the love and power of God through media. MediaMessengers.org. If you like the show, follow us on social media. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at MMessengers, on Instagram at Media Messengers, or subscribe to our growing YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Media Messengers. And please, please help us reach more people by sharing this podcast. Lastly, check the show notes for links and resources. God bless.